Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, Episode 12, The State, Part 1, The Government. Last time, we completed our geographical tour of the empire by looking at the eastern provinces and the peoples living beyond the borders. Today we're going to take a more bird's-eye view of the Byzantine state and look at how society functioned day-to-day with a particular focus on the three major institutions which operated within the empire, the government, the church, and the army. Or at least, that was the plan. As with the episode on Constantinople, the sheer amount of information I wanted to tell you has ballooned this episode to twice the usual length. Instead of changing things around too much, I've just split the episode into two. So today, in part one, we will focus on the government. And tomorrow, in part two, we will look at the church and the army. Yes, tomorrow. I thought I'd give it 24 hours just in case it confuses anyone's feeds, but the work is done, the episode is recorded. By Tuesday, you will have two episodes for the price of one. We'll start with the function of government and how individuals fitted into its structures. The individual at the top, of course, was the emperor. Since Augustus had gathered all executive power around the office, the emperor was the decision-maker in the Roman state. Through the History of Rome podcast, we saw how this office evolved from the approachable principate to the hard-to-reach dominant. By the 6th century, the emperor as Dominus, your lord and master, was firmly established. We saw in episode 10 how one would have to go through one palace after another just to reach the imperial palace, and once there you would be a supplicant groveling before his imperial majesty. Of course, emperors still met with advisers and ambassadors and generals and would talk to them like any other person. And in ideological terms, the Roman Republican past still lingered on in the legal framework of imperial power. Byzantine emperors were expected to not be above the law, despite the fact that they had the power to change it. The idea that laws made the empire civilized and that the emperor was protector of them still existed, and was still widely believed to be the done thing. If an emperor were to flout this and nakedly demonstrate his ability to do whatever he wanted, he would likely be branded a tyrant and perhaps justify, in the minds of unhappy citizens, a rebellion against him. 
Of course, in practice, obedience to the law was more imperial self-preservation rather than an insurmountable obstacle to decision-making, but these invisible constraints on acceptable behaviour are very much part of what makes daily life what it is. So as it was in the days of Caligula or Commodus, if an emperor went around chopping heads off or stealing estates, the people would no longer accept him as their rightful ruler. But in addition to these basic restraints of good governance, Christianity had now added a new dimension to the role of imperator. Constantine had, of course, publicized himself as the founder of a new kind of emperorship, one endorsed by God and one needing a new capital to cement its status. Subsequent Christian emperors had continued in this tradition, increasingly seeing themselves as God's vice-regent on earth. They were no longer just lord of the Roman people, they were lord of God's people. The daily ritual of life in Constantinople reinforced this notion to both the emperors and their subjects. The emperor was the key figure in processions and mass, and was to be seen leading his people in worship. We also saw from the history of Rome that Constantine and his sons began to see the role of the now Christian emperor as more than just the lawful sovereign of the empire. The idea began to grow that he was actually the leader of worldwide Christianity. Constantine had told the Persian king that his Christian subjects were actually under Constantine's protection. And while none of Constantine's successors had actually tried to make this claim a reality, it was a precedent which remained in the minds of subsequent emperors. If they were God's right-hand man, then surely they must protect all of his people. This, of course, brings us to the Monophysites and the question of orthodoxy. From our 21st century perspective, it seems counterproductive for the Byzantines to have constantly harassed their own people into all believing the same thing. For centuries, Roman toleration had kept the differing beliefs of the Mediterranean under one political system. Now, however, state policy was to define one set of beliefs and make sure no one was straying from them. Why was this so important? A number of reasons converge on this, I think. Judeo-Christian traditions are, of course, important. The Jews had for millennia seen themselves as God's chosen people and protected their laws at all costs. The commandment to have no other gods but God was a concept that, when taken seriously, could see the Monophysites or others who differed from Orthodox belief as disobeying this instruction. Jesus, of course, said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to God was through him. So Christians were always likely to argue strongly that having the right beliefs were the only way to gain eternal life. But coupled with this desire to obey the one true God in the right way, was the Roman belief in divine support. From the time of the Republic, it was accepted that the gods must be appeased, honoured and sacrificed to, in order to secure the safety of the state. Military victory and the expansion of the empire were seen naturally as extensions of divine favour. This concept was hardwired into the mindset of society, so when the deity being worshipped changed, 
these facts of life did not. It was now vital that God be worshipped by all on the same basis to secure his favour for the empire. To allow the Monophysites or some other belief system to exist amongst God's people was not just a pious concern, but a national security issue. Of course, the influence of Christianity did have another effect on the emperors. They were now to be seen as pious Christians themselves. You may recall how the emperor Theodosius did serious penance after allowing the slaughter of the citizens of Thessalonica by their Gothic garrison. Day to day, the emperors now knew they should be seen as good men doing good work. After all, they were no longer just another Augustus or Trajan. They were another Moses or David. They should be seen as wise rulers, caring for their people, spreading the truth faith wherever they could, and protecting the church. As you also know from the history of Rome, the emperors no longer campaigned in person. Theodosius was the last man in the East to do so, and while someone like Zeno would have had extensive military experience before he donned the purple, once on the throne, the emperors stayed in the capital. All decisions would be made here and flow outward to the rest of the empire. Before we follow those decisions out into the empire, though, there's one trivial matter I should probably mention. The imperial regalia had changed since the days of Augustus. The white or purple toga and laurels had now been replaced by the diadem or the crown with long flowing robes and red boots. Surrounding the emperor in his palace were the ministers of state. Arguably the most important position was the master of offices, created around 320 to become head of the empire's administration. This man was in charge of the day-to-day functioning of the palace. He commanded the scholari, the palace regiments, and was responsible for the emperor's safety. He controlled and directed the empire's bureaucrats, including the imperial courier service, interpreters, diplomats, spies, and secret police. Those last two roles might conjure up images in your head of a far more organized system of intelligence than actually existed. But this wider body of civil servants were spread out across the empire, keeping a close watch on provincial officials, maintaining the public post, and implementing government policies, all while reporting back to the master of offices. If this weren't enough, he was also responsible for the supervision of imperial armament factories and of the billeting and provisioning of troops. He also had broad judicial authority over military courts. He was equal rank and status with the other two senior officials of the empire, but as you can see, he wielded considerable power and could keep an eye on all the other bureaus of the palace because the men staffing them were often provided by him. Those two officials of equal rank were the confusingly named Praetorian Prefects. As you may remember from episode 10, the excubitors were the Emperor's bodyguard and were the Byzantine equivalent of the old Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Prefects were Diocletian's innovation. 
when he was trying to increase central control over the empire, he created a level of authority above the provincial governors by grouping multiple provinces into dioceses, who then had a vicar ruling each one. The dioceses were then grouped into Praetorian prefectures, with a prefect ruling each one of those. There were only now two prefectures left, Illyricum and the East, the others having been lost in the West. The prefect of Illyricum, based in Thessalonica, had an important role in governing the vulnerable Balkan provinces. But of course it was more prestigious to be prefect of the East, based in Constantinople and interacting weekly with the emperor. The primary function of the Praetorian prefect was the calculation, collection and redistribution of the land tax. However, they were also responsible for justice. Both legal cases and tax collection made their way up the ladder from the local level, to the local council, then to the nearest city, on up to provincial, diocesan and finally prefectural levels. The land tax was the most important source of the empire's money. The departments of the prefect would have staff responsible for each diocese and each province and would send out inspectors and officials to make sure taxes were being properly assessed and paid. As you may remember from episode 4, Anastasius was slowly encouraging people to pay in cash once more after Diocletian had organized the system around payments in kind back in the 3rd century. The prefect's job included organizing the grain shipments coming to the capital from Egypt and those headed out to feed the armies. It may not be the most sexy answer to the question of Roman success or Byzantine survival, but this field-by-field assessment of tax was a huge reason why the empire lasted as long as it did. Every year, year after year, it supplied the treasury with vast amounts of revenue, increasingly in gold. This income maintained an imperial bureaucracy, who in turn maintained the armies and fleets which made the empire possible. I'll talk more about the huge advantages which a professional army gave to the empire in the next episode, but for now, that circulation of gold kept the empire's economy flowing, as salaried officials and military personnel would spend their cash, creating a liquid market for farmers, craftsmen, and professionals of all kinds, who could then also pay their taxes in cash. Now, of course, this system was very far from perfect. The salaries of the evaluators, collectors, bookkeepers, auditors, inspectors, and supervisors were themselves a huge expense and those same paid officials would accept bribes, extort illegal payments, or divert tax money into their own pockets. Without modern communications and technology, it was all too easy for payments to fall through the cracks. The government often had to levy special taxes when emergencies arose and specific local communities were obliged to feed and house officials and soldiers or provide goods, wood, charcoal, or maintain roads, bridges, and fortifications. So, who were paying these taxes? The two largest corporate landholders were the church and the emperor. We'll talk more about the church tomorrow, 
but as you probably know, the emperors had been gobbling up land for centuries, including the best land in Egypt. The leading private landowners were, of course, the senators. They would still meet in session, but had no important decision-making role. Consuls and praetors were still elected, but their roles were purely ceremonial, beyond paying for their respective games. The size of each senator's holdings varied greatly, and it's worth saying that the East didn't have as many Bill Gates types as the West had had. Some of the old Italian families controlled acres of land spread across Spain and Africa, dating back to Republican times. Of course, the East had its share of mega-wealthy men, but the balance was not quite as skewed. Senators were now ranked in three classes, or grades, largely based on wealth, with illustres at the top and clericimi at the bottom. Only men of the highest grade could now actually sit in the Senate in Constantinople, while those of the lower grade were forced to remain resident in their provinces. There was a tendency for the rich to head to the capital, where they wouldn't have to contribute to the upkeep of the city, because the emperor took care of that. The emperors had therefore slapped down on this, trying to make sure that at least some of the wealthy stayed in the provinces and helped pay for the upkeep of their regions. The local elite out in the provinces would be made up of private landowners, members of the provincial town councils, representatives of the provincial governor, and the leading clergy. The members of town councils, or the curial class, were a constant problem for the empire. Back in the classical past, when the city-state was king, rich men would lavish their towns with amenities, sculptures, baths and temples to advertise their own splendour. In an era when all power had been sucked to the centre, there seemed much less incentive to invest locally and the town councils had come to be seen as a dead-end job. The position was hereditary, meaning families were essentially locked in for life as the providers for their towns and the collectors of local taxation. If the necessary amount couldn't be collected, then you would be responsible for the shortfall, a position which provided little notoriety and could be potentially ruinous. Between the time of Constantine and Theodosius II, 192 laws were passed trying to regulate the councillors' jobs and prevent men from leaving their posts. Below the wealthy were everybody else. As we saw in Constantinople, there could be a wide variety of jobs in a major city, but out in the provinces, you were most likely going to be an agricultural worker a rural artisan, or a skilled worker in a specialist trade. And by far the largest group were the agricultural workers. The empire lived off the land as it had always done. Traditions differed from place to place, but there were usually two situations for a worker of this kind. One was that they were a tenant of the local major landowner. They were tied to their plot of land forever, but the landowner would be responsible for all payments of tax. The benefit to this serfdom was that, in theory at least, you couldn't be thrown off your land. The alternative system was to rent the land from the wealthy landowner, but pay your own taxes. 
A third smaller group were actual free peasant landowners, though usually they were no more prosperous than their tenant neighbours. As it had always been, Byzantine society was fairly static, and the inheritance of your parents' jobs was usually the case, either through necessity or by law. However, it was always possible to change your station in life. Opportunities were slim, but through the church, the army, or the imperial bureaucracy, men could still make a name for themselves. The imperial bureaucracy was, of course, centred on Constantinople. The major offices underneath the Praetorian prefectures and master of offices were the financial departments. The Count of the Sacred Largesse was responsible for minting coins, the state-run workshops, and the issuing of military pay. The Count of the Private Fortune dealt with legal cases surrounding the Emperor's land, while the Count of the Patrimony looked after the estates themselves. The revenue from which paid for the games in the Hippodrome, Imperial building projects, and the palace running expenses. Large tracts of imperial land were managed by senators, who became curators of the estates in exchange for a salary or keeping the profits over a certain fixed payment to the treasury. These positions were highly sought after because of the tax breaks and opportunities for enrichment. The imperial lands, you see, were exempt from the clutches of the tax collectors, no matter which province they sat in. There was also the quaestor, or minister for legislation and propaganda, who drafted laws, the grand chamberlain, generally a eunuch, who would guard the emperor's private apartments. There was the urban prefect, who governed Constantinople. He had his own praetorium outside the palace, where he could judge criminal cases, control urban trade, and look after the city's water supply. He also acted as a sort of chief of police and had a small guard who were meant to put down riots, which, obviously, they were not very successful at. All these officials and others would make up the consistory, or imperial council, who checked imperial decrees, advised the emperor, and received ambassadors. Below them were any number of other civil servants, scribes, notaries, and assistants, carrying out their orders and keeping the empire running. These positions in the capital were highly desirable because of the chance to make cash. Imperial officials charged everyone extra fees for carrying out their work. These sportuli, or additional fees, are hardly an uncommon feature of many societies. To get your permit sorted out or your lawsuit properly written up, you paid your fee to an official to make sure it got done. However, Byzantine bureaucrats took things to extremes, including charging you a fee just for collecting your taxes. The emperors were ever concerned to rein the system in. Their laws show a genuine concern that the illiterate poor should not be tricked by cunning officials. Constantine had banned the system, but clearly couldn't enforce that, because by the time of Valens, the emperor issued a decree trying to organize and regulate the practice. A job in Constantinople was so attractive that men with money would try and buy them, with even some clerical positions being, unofficially, up for sale. 
Although the system sounds quite corrupt to us, it clearly kept things working in the capital and attracted talent and money to Constantinople. It's possible that a lack of similar inducements at Rome or Ravenna contributed to the breakdown of imperial rule in the West. Before we leave the government, I should just say one more thing about eunuchs. They were increasingly a popular choice as palace employees, because men who couldn't have heirs were seen as safe people to be around the emperor and his family. A well-placed eunuch could therefore become very wealthy and influential, and were often despised and mocked by the senators who couldn't reach their level of influence despite having much higher status in society. Deliberate castration was of course illegal in the empire, and so many eunuchs came from beyond the borders. So, the government of the East was far more organised and regulated than it had been in the age of the Antonines. The crises which had hit the empire over the last three centuries had required the emperors to manage ever more closely the resources at their disposal. The bureaucratic class had certainly grown as a result, but not to a ruinous extent. I'm sure the tax collectors weren't popular, but when an intelligent ruler like Anastasius was at the helm, the system functioned well enough to keep the borders safe and the treasury full. We'll take a pause there and come back with part two as we look at the church and the army in the 6th century. Thank you all for listening, and see you tomorrow.